0: friends please pray with me holy god thank you for the gift of life the gift of laughter the gift of your word your word of scripture your living word alive in us uh, may you now quiet our hearts and minds so that we can attend to you so that we can be changed so we can bless the world you love amen in this morning's scripture God speaks to Jeremiah, a young man, a youth, and says, I have appointed you over nations and empires to pluck up and pull down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. With a call like that, who among us wouldn't be a little intimidated, a little scared? Who among us wouldn't say, "Uh, I'm sorry, I don't really think I'm up to that today. Now, we might be tempted to think, oh, but this is Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet. That's what Jeremiah does, this prophet thing. He rails against nations, he calls them out, he laments. But remember, this is Jeremiah's call story. This is the very beginning for Jeremiah before he's actually done any of that. We know, we know that he will be engaging the powers in his world for years. Jeremiah's life will span the lives of at least three kings. Jeremiah lives through King Josiah, the reformer king, who genuinely tries to do things right, some high points in the life of Judah. And then Jeremiah is there for the steep ride down with the king that follows, a rapid descent back into oppression and exploitation, and his nation's fall to an invading empire. But here in Jeremiah 1, Verse 6, at the beginning, as Jeremiah says, he's just a boy. He's a young man, a youth, familiar with the troubles of his world, but standing on the threshold of the life that lies before him. And God says, I appoint you over nations and empires to pluck up and pull down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. With a call like that, who among us would not be a little intimidated, a little scared? Jeremiah stands at two thresholds. The more global one is the threshold of the prophetic imagination, the uncertainty of movements and powers at work in his troubled world. Where in the world are we headed? And then there's the more particular, the threshold of calling, the particular future that is opening up even now in a particular life for a particular person, for this particular youth, as they move into that uncertain world, as they move into their life, the threshold of the prophetic imagination and the threshold of calling. Let's take those one by one. Now, the threshold of prophetic imagination, just the phrase, sounds a little intimidating. But this concept, and bear with me, the prophetic imagination, which comes from Walter Brueggemann, is one of the most useful ways I've found of trying to understand the prophets, the biblical prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. Every year the lectionary gives us some suggested scripture readings for worship, and each year we spend some time with a specific gospel and with different parts of the Bible. This year, You may have figured it out already, we're spending time with the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be spending time along the way with the prophets. I think the prophets can sometimes feel inaccessible. A lot of the time, they rail and wail, doom and gloom, fire and brimstone. Where's the hope in that? In those ancient laments, how do we even get a toehold in all that to find a word for today? Well, what Walter Brueggemann says is this, the prophetic imagination, the prophet, essentially does two things. The prophetic imagination looks around the world as it is, and first, it announces what's wrong in the world and says it must come to an end. And then second, it does that to make way for the new thing that God is doing even now. Something must come to an end so that something new can come to life. Oppression must give way so that freedom can be born. This is a word of hope. God is not bound to the structures and powers that currently hold sway in the world. God is free to tear down what must come down. God is free to build and plant a new world, a new creation. The prophetic imagination looks with clear and honest eyes at the world as it is and envisions an alternative consciousness, an alternative community. The prophetic imagination responds to the cry of a people hurting in the world as it is and calls to life a world where all can live free. As Kenyatta Gilbert says, the prophetic imagination invites us to pull down the forces that frustrate God's will for life and then it calls all those who would help rebuild lives in a broken world. So as we spend some time with the prophets this year, every time we come to them, I want us to ask two questions in what we find there. What is wrong and must be dismantled and torn down? What new thing is coming to life? God invites Jeremiah, this youth, into that worthy work to pluck up and to pull down to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. In the midst of the threshold of the prophetic imagination, what God is doing in the world even now, Jeremiah Jeremiah also stands at the threshold of his calling. God says, I have created you to be a part of all this, to be a part of liberating in rebuilding the world." And Jeremiah responds, how can that even be possible? Now even the simple word calling may need some unpacking. When we read it in stories like this, it can be easy to think, oh that kind of calling, God having a purpose like that for our lives, that's something for prophets or maybe for religious professionals. But it's something So much more universal than that remember as they were experiencing their calling Moses and David were young shepherds keeping watch over their flock Jeremiah was an ordinary boy and Mary was an ordinary girl the disciples were fishermen and tax collectors each of them at some point standing at the threshold of their calling Maybe we could use the word vocation. That's really just the Latin version of calling, but even that might narrow our thinking too much to professions, to professional vocation. At one point when I was considering a job change, the job change that actually led me to serve in this church, I read this book called Designing Your Life. It's a more contemporary Silicon Valley way of thinking about calling. The writers from the Stanford Design School suggest using design principles to think of how we collaboratively design a life that uses our gifts our passions our longings to serve the world calling is the sense of who you are created to be in the world and what you are to do it's that straightforward last week we talked about how we are all fearfully and wonderfully made woven together in the body of christ calling is about how we are fearfully and wonderfully made each one of us the particularity of us, the particularity of you, how you are fearfully and wonderfully made and how that shows up in the world. Calling is about asking the question, who has God created you to be in the world and what are we to do with that? Jeremiah stands at the threshold of his calling and God says, I'm at work in the world and I want you to be a part of that. The tearing down and the building up. The freedom and well-being of all people. Jeremiah, I need you to speak truth to power. And Jeremiah says, I'm but a boy. I'm just a boy. I don't know how to speak. And look at God's reply. I know you, Jeremiah. I've known you from before you were born. When you were in the womb, I knew you and I created you. It even sounds like Psalm 139 from last week. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I created you for this. And then God says, and I am with you. Even now, even as you move out into your life, to all whom I send you, you'll go. And what I give you to say, you'll say, I will be with you to deliver you. And then God, God reaches out their hand. It's so intimate and touches Jeremiah's mouth and says, Today, I put my words in your mouth. In the threshold of calling, God calls us to bring all of who we are created to be to the fullness of the life we live and to join together in a shared life of rebuilding and reshaping a world where all live free. God creates us and calls us and accompanies us and empowers us, inviting us to become all we are created to be in the world for the sake of the world. I've been thinking about a couple things that happened this past week. As we announced last Sunday on Tuesday, there was a big meeting of the Marin Housing Authority It was a culmination. There's still still a ways to go, but it was a culmination in the long efforts of public housing residents at Golden Gate Village to to have some say in how their homes are managed and renovated from the current state of extreme disrepair. They've been at this for a long time. Three or four years ago, I remember the residents were gathering folks in protest. A number of us went across the street from the Marin Civic Center with bullhorns. They were just trying to get their voices heard in the halls of power. Over the past two years, there have been meetings after meetings of the supervisors and the housing authority as the residents have spoken up and as the supervisors, for the most part, have just sent silently, stoically, proceeding with their own plans. But Royce McLemore and the Golden Gate Village Residence Council kept gathering folks and building a community, speaking up at meeting after meeting, and gradually folks from communities all over Marin, including ours, started listening. Went on tours of the living conditions at Golden Gate Village and learned, and then started joining the crowd of those who were speaking up, and on Tuesday, the residents' Council finally got to present their plan after these years. For more than an hour, at the Housing Authority meeting, they had the floor. Royce McLemore presen- pr- presented the Residence Council plan with their architects and their lawyers and experts, and then Golden Gate Village residents took their turn and spoke up, and then community members, Marin City clergy spoke and folks from all over Marin County spoke up. From our congregation, Tom McAfee, Barbara Rothkrog, Peter Anderson, Lindsay McClurg spoke up, and when the supervisors closed public comment, Sue Neal, Ron Vestal, Bonnie Kunstler, Royce Truex and others were still standing in line. Standing in line like you do on Zoom. With a community gathered over several years of steady work, the Golden Gate Village residents spoke of what needed to come to an end. And they advocated for a future of self-determination and rebuilding. I've been thinking of how our callings come together how they converge, how that weaving together that Psalm 139 mentions, how that continues throughout our lives. And I've been thinking about how our callings continue even beyond our lives. In the Wednesday morning support group, we're starting to read a book by John Lewis. And in the early pages, he reminds us that the work we do won't be completed in our lifetime. I've heard that before. But for the first time, For the first time I thought, of course, of course the work isn't completed in our lifetime because if it was, what would be left for the generations who follow to do? Our calling is our part. A little over a week ago, April Hughes called to let me know that a seminary family was having a baby and to ask if the deacons could help provide meals. We sent that request on to Mary and Lisa and Ann poor and the deacons and they said, of course. And a week ago, on Thursday and Friday, the seminary community brought the family meals. And on Saturday and Sunday, our deacons brought them meals. And somewhere in there, a little girl was born. And her older brothers and sisters had hot meals while mom and dad did the new baby, mom and dad things, and I've wondered, this little girl, what is she fearfully and wonderfully created to be and to do? How will her life flow out of these lives and all this love? On Thursday, Mary Waite forwarded me an opinion piece that Amanda Gorman wrote in the New York Times, reflecting back on January 20th, reflecting back on the poem she wrote for and then read at last year's presidential inauguration. Do you know that she almost backed out of reading that poem? Amanda Gorman writes that she almost declined to be the inaugural poet because she was scared terrified, scared, she says, of failing my people, of failing my poetry, and there was COVID. And also she knew she would become a highly visible black person with no secret service protection, speaking at the Capitol just days after white supremacists had stormed the Capitol. Amanda Gorman thought long and hard and thought about her fear and came to this realization. She says this, I look at fear not as cowardice, but as a call forward. A summons to fight for what we hold dear. Now more than ever, we have the right to be affected, afflicted, affronted. If you're alive, you are afraid. If you're not afraid, you're not paying attention. The only thing we have to fear is having no fear itself, having no feeling on behalf of whom and what we have lost, on behalf of whom and what we love. She listened to the call of her ancestors who had fought for freedom, and Amanda Gorman read her poem. Reflecting on the year that has passed since that momentous day, here's what she says that she found. What I found waiting beyond my fear was every person who searched beyond their own fears to find space for hope in their lives, who welcomed the impact of a poem into protest, hospitals, classrooms, conversations, living rooms, offices, art, we could say a women's retreat, invited that poem into all manner of moments. She says, I may have worked on the words, but it was other people who put those words to work. At the threshold of the prophetic imagination and the threshold of calling, God calls us to engage the work of remaking a world. That means dismantling destructive powers. That means planting and building something new. That also means being honest enough and brave enough to look at ourselves and to see what we can do to speak, and to love to pluck up and to pull down to dismantle and to overthrow to build and to plant and to do all that with god's help together